0: Boy, it's good to see you all this morning. uh, We're returning, or we're continuing in our series on the life of Simon Peter. And this morning, we're looking at what some like to call Peter's second great confession. If you remember, last week, we looked at his first great confession, where he was the first human to publicly declare that he's the the very Son of God, the Messiah. He was the embodiment of... Uh, of God making good on his promise to send the Messiah to redeem the world from their sins. And this confession, I think, as you'll see, is just very, very different. Uh, It it has a different feel to it, and it comes in a very different context. Let me set the scene for you uh, real quickly. Imagine for a second... That you're a part of a crowd of disciples that makes a distinction between the crowd of disciples and the 12 apostles, okay? So you're a part of this crowd of disciples and you've been hungry for days. You've been just following Jesus around, listening to his teaching and witnessing his miracles. And you were one of the 5,000 people that Jesus fed with, uh, with bread using very meager supplies, And that would have been as shocking to you as it was wonderful. And the next morning you wake up and you realize, of course, that you're hungry again. And you go outside, let's say you're sleeping in a tent, I don't know, you go outside and you're standing around a fire on a cool morning with a couple of other friends and you realize they're hungry too. And you look up and you notice that Jesus is no longer around. In fact, you look across the sea and see that he's on the other side of this lake. And so you go to him, and he says something very cryptic. He says, you are looking for me because I gave you bread to eat. But do not work for food that is perishable, but for food that endures to eternal life, is what he says to you. And your stomach's beginning to growl. And you say, sir, that's bread always. And then everything takes a turn when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. That's where we'll pick up this morning. I'll uh, begin reading in chapter 6, verse 50, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 71. Hear the word of the Lord. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true drink, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Well, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, would you be amongst us as the one who gives us life? And oh Jesus, would you help us as we wrestle with what many consider, consider a very hard teaching? And Holy Spirit, would you be uh, at work amongst us, giving us life? Would you help me, your servant, to serve these people well and be faithful to them? And would you give me strength and a clear mind as I go before them now? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the joys of this series, I think, is that we get to bounce around to all four different Gospels and kind of look at different pictures of who Peter is, uh, and uh, this is actually the first time that we're looking at John, and we're kind of. Dr- but if you had picked up the book of John and began with chapter one and read all the way to this point, you would have seen some astounding things. Uh, you would have seen major claims about who Jesus is, and you would have seen major responses to who he is claims and responses. Uh, first, the claims, you would have known that Jesus was born with great hope. That is a major claim in the book of John. It was hailed as a great moment where God was became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, you would read that Jesus was on par or at least on par or greater than some of the major figures in the Jewish religious history. It said that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came directly from God through Jesus Christ, who left his father's side to be with us, okay? That, uh, that is a major claim about Jesus that John offers us early on. In terms of cosmic importance, uh, uh, claims don't get much bigger than that. Responses to these claims that are being made, you would have read about a groundswell of support from people in response to these claims. Uh, It began with John the Baptist, who looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, It would continue with these 12 apostles who circle around Jesus and shed their former lives in order to commit. And this continues all the way up until the beginning of chapter 6, where we are this morning, when it says that a large crowd was now following Jesus. Jesus. So up until now, major claims followed up by a tremendous response from the people. That's all you've seen until now. Um, and John, that, uh, that we don't see an overtly positive response from the people that have gathered around them. And if you were looking at this strictly through the lens of a religious movement or a political movement this would have been a very dark moment as people are turning away from him. They're voting with their feet and they're abandoning Jesus. And the support around him has whittled. In fact, it's so dark that even Jesus turns to his 12 apostles and says, do you want to leave too? Just what is going on here? What did Jesus say that had such a dramatic and negative effect on so many people at the same time. And what do the apostles know, and Peter specifically, what are they convinced of that gives them permission to remain with Jesus, even despite what question I want to get at this morning? What did, what did Jesus say, and what were the responses? So, what did Jesus claim? How do people respond? That's the way I'm getting into this. First, what Jesus claimed. Now, it, there's no question that there is a lot of very curious language that's being used in this text. Jesus is saying some things that come off as uh, as curious. Some of them don't really know. But he is making major claims in this passage about who he is and what he's there to do. And the first claim is that through him, somehow... uh, we might have access to eternal life. He says it several times in this passage. He's talking about life eternal. I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven, so that my is the claim that he's making. And it's as if he knows that we need to hear this point over and over again, because he says it again in verse 51. He says it again in verse 58. He even contrasts himself with the bread that came down from heaven, that fed their forefathers in the wilderness. That's what when he says, um, he says uh, they all they all eventually died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Uh, not only that, but he also adds that he's the exclusive source. Three. If you're interested in eternal life, he is he is the only person that has this available for his people. Unless you eat of this flesh and drink this blood, you have no life in you. So he's an exclusive source of eternal life. That's a big claim. And then he follows it up by claiming that he's come to make a sacrifice for the sake of life. Verse 51, he says, The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now what he's doing in that passage is he's explicit that he offers his people with the sacrifice of his own flesh. That's what's going on there. Me for you is what he's saying there. He's using sacrificial and transactional language to describe how this life is won for his people by the sacrifice of his own body. And so one of the things I want you to see here is that Leighton within this passage are just really giving to his people about what what he's there to do. And um, as... You know, this may be you, this may not be you, but as Christians, sometimes we whittle down uh, our relationship to Jesus and our understanding of the gospel to those two things, a sacrifice that was achieved on our behalf and the eternal life that was promised to us. And those things are true, important, that lies right at the heart of the gospel if we stop there. And so that's why it's important that Jesus goes on to talk about how we have fellowship with God through him. He, he, he doesn't reduce it to a transaction, but he talks about God's heart for his people. Right at the heart of the gospel is God's heart for his people. And so that's where he goes on to make radical claims about the fellowship with God that he has won. He says that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And so he's saying there's a, there's, a, there's a deep communion that exists between us and Christ through Christ. And then, then here's where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. So he just laid out the deep communion us. But he's also saying that there are elements of our relationship with Jesus that run parallel to what Jesus' relationship with God the Father looks like. There are elements of our relationship with Jesus that are so rich the Trinitarian relationship amongst the Godhead. As claims go, they don't get much bigger than that. And you might say, that's great, Charles. But, and I just can't get around, can't get around that. Uh, he's talking about this in ways that are frankly uncomfortable. What is he doing Well, when you study Jesus' teachings, uh, you'll see that he's not always speaking literally. He does this often, actually. He uses physical terms to explain spiritual realities. And he, he, I mean, it's just like studied ways that he used the concept of fish and fishermen. He uses farming analogies to describe what he's up to. He, uh, he even uses taxes and money to describe the gospel, all just trying to help us understand what it is he's doing and, 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 uh, and how to understand the gospel. And in this case, what he's doing is he's using one of my, our most basic fundamental needs, food, to help us understand the nature of our relationship with him. There's this great TV show. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's great. I would, yeah, I think I can. I think I can put my stamp of approval on it. It's uh, It's on the History Channel, uh, and it's a. It's a reality wilderness survival contest called Alone. Um, and it's just fantastic, okay? But it's crazy, too. It's just insane. So what they do is they take all these wilderness survival experts, real studs, men and women, life in the middle of nowhere in a dangerous place, and they drop them into the wilderness, and they, the, the goal is simple— they just have to outlast every all the other contestants all alone and there are so many exa- like so many revelations of human nature that pop out through the story but one of the biggest ones is just food And what they have, they come in equipment and clothing, and uh, they also give them a bunch of cameras. And their job is to film themselves, like building shelters and gathering food. And they also have like little personal diary moments where they stand in front of the camera and talk to them. It's really interesting to see they're alone and they're lonely. And so it seems like the camera kind of becomes their best friend, you know? They're processing out their thoughts. And what happens every time with hardly any exceptions is that as soon as these contestants get, they, um, they immediately start wasting away. Like they get skinnier and skinnier at a dramatic pace because they can't gather up enough food to just sustain them while they're out there. And in many ways, that's how you win the contest is just who gets the most food. And, uh, and you see them as they get more and more hungry, it affects their mood. They get despondent. And they start talking to the camera about how they don't know how much longer they can last. And uh, they they begin to miss their family or their life back home. And sometimes they remember their job and how much they realized they, they were saying how much they hated it. I mean, everything is affected by the fact that they don't have food. And then suddenly one of them will like catch a fish. Or they'll, they'll catch a rabbit in a trap One guy, I'm not kidding One guy even took out a moose Like a full-size adult moose It was unbelievable And then everything changes All of a sudden their thoughts to the camera Is like, hey, I feel it On a dime, everything changed As soon as they had food Because food is not just necessary For sustaining life Food is where we find hope And when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I have something to offer you that sustains you forever. And I will nourish you in hope. And so one of the things he's doing is he's challenging his followers who who just simply want to make him king because he gave them bread. They want to make him the bread king. It's earlier in chapter 6. As soon as he fed them bread, he, it said he had to run away from them because they were about to make him a king. Now, what a fundamental job of the king. Jesus was there for so much more. And so F.B. Meyer puts it perfectly. It says that he had to undeceive them. And he also had to deepen their sense of need. He says, you want bread for, for a day, but my hope for you runs much deeper than that. Uh, He's telling us that we hunger and thirst in more profound ways than a loaf of bread can fix. And listen, make no mistake, we all have desires when it comes to Jesus. We all have things in our life that we look at and say, only God can change this. Only Jesus, I need you to move in this way because I can't fix it and nobody else can. We all have those. And our prayers are littered with hopes that we have and in desires that we have and needs that we have, You're sending those prayers to the right place. And they're heard by God with a sympathetic heart. But my question for you is, what happens to you when Jesus doesn't give you what you want? How do you respond to that, these disciples? You were just asking for bread. It was a simple ask. In fact, it didn't even seem like it was all that hard for Jesus to come up with bread in the first place. How would you have responded to to asking for bread and then hearing this teaching? Well, we see several responses in this passage. And I just want to name three. And the first is by a group that I want to call the religious covenant. And these are people who are turned off uh, by the ways it seems that Jesus is trampling over their religious heritage. They, they can't stand that Jesus says he was sent by the Father. Uh, they're turned off by the mention of drinking blood. That's a, that's, that's a big no-no. That's a, like a Levitical no-no um, that, against, that is against their law. So that's an immediate trigger for them. Uh, it seems like he might be impugning Moses or manna. He says he's greater than those things, right? they their understanding of who the Messiah was and they couldn't do it. So they just walked away. Religious obstinate. He didn't fit their categories. And so they were done. The next is by a group I want to call the fragile hard hearted. That's a mouthful. That feels strange. Fragile hard heartedness. Uh, But here we go. Uh, Verse 60. Many of his disciples, who can listen to it? Uh, John Calvin says the real hardness wasn't in his teaching, it was in their hearts. They think that Jesus is speaking literally, they write him off when he won't give them what they're asking for. Jesus was calling them to revise their standards of what he was there for, and so they walked away. About both of these groups is that there's no mention of them even trying to wrestle with or make sense of what Jesus was saying. I read this, and I need to read it over and over and over again, and I need to talk to people, and like, like, it's okay to hear this or read this and not understand immediately what it's saying but they're not even trying like they're they're gone in a hair trigger that day that moment that he's not giving the human responsibilities that we have with people that we love or people that we're trying to learn from or people whose works that we read is just to try and cooperate with whatever they're trying to like we owe that to each other and there's none of that that's being given here They don't get what they're after and so they're done with him. And then what we have is we have Peter. It's probably speaking for all the disciples again, making his second great confession. When Jesus turns to him and asks him, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Michael Card calls this a loyal despair, a resilient faithfulness. These are beautiful words. And they're even more beautiful when you think that Peter probably doesn't understand what Jesus is saying either. One of the things that we often see in these stories about the way Jesus taught the disciples is that Jesus is laying the groundwork with teaching that's only going to make sense later. When they see Jesus dying on the cross and resurrected from the dead three days later, this is one of those moments where that, that, that things might become crystallized later when they see the life that Jesus goes through. Peter, And so here's the thing, Peter doesn't understand everything when he says this. But he understands this, that that Jesus' teachings are the very words of eternal life. And indeed, if you look at this, Jesus has been talking about life, the bread of life. He says he's there for the life of the world. He says it's by the spirit that we have life. We could go on and on. And even when it seems like this coalition around Jesus is breaking apart, Peter clings tightly to him because He is convinced that with Jesus' life and apart from him, there is no life. And that no matter where Jesus takes him and what he does with him, he came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Is that your conviction? Are you able to say, when despair seems incredibly reasonable, are you able to stand up and still say, you have the words of life, and I will cling to you. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you part of the religious obstinate? I promise you, I wasn't thinking of specific people, okay? as <laughs> I was working through this. But is it possible? And chafing at what you see are the wrong words. Like you have a box for what life as Jesus is supposed to look like, and who Jesus is supposed to be, and, and, and you kind of stuck to that. Are you easily offended and dismissed quickly when Jesus doesn't match up to who you think he's supposed to be? Or is it possible of things he needs to do uh, in order for you to follow him? Or is it possible that you're so focused on your needs for the day, and this is easy, Is it possible that you're so focused on your needs for the day that you're missing the hopes Jesus has for your life everlasting? Or are you familiar, like many of us, with Peter's loyal despair? Life worth living is the one found in Jesus, and you trust him with gritted teeth even when it's hard. Is that where you're at this morning? I've sat and prayed with many people that have longings for Jesus to meet. And, and you know what I hardly ever hear are just desires that feel selfish or unworthy of Him. Hardly ever hear things like that. Often I sit and pray with people that want a baby, or they want their marriage to heal, or they feel lonely and they want friends or they're wrestling with anxiety or something and they just want relief, they want hope. And it's confusing and it's disorienting when these longings sometimes go unmet. And listen, I want you to know I'm with you and I get you on that. It comes to your door as it does for all of us. Come back to the story and look at Peter. And remember, there's a place for faith amidst all the reasons that we have for despair. Or listen to how Dostoevsky put it in the Brothers Karamazov. He says that suffering will be healed and made up for. And that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. And that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. The promise of Jesus is that he's so much more than bread for a day. He is bread for life. And the call on you is to cling to that promise that might suffice for our hearts too, both in this life and in the next. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would feed our souls and that, Jesus, we would settle for nothing less. And you would expand our hearts with the capacity to hope, even in difficulty. And that you would always be drawing us toward you, both in good times and in difficult ones. As we begin to look toward coming to your meal, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.